This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. At KPMG, our people make the difference. Combining the power of people and technology, we uncover brighter insights innovate bolder solutions, and create better data-driven outcomes. KPMG. Make the difference. This episode is dedicated to the memory of my great friend, Tony Lovell, who I wrote about in my first book, and who sadly died on the 7th of June, 2020. Tony would have loved this episode. He knew everything there was to know about ecosystems and how to help them thrive and recover. And the world has lost a great friend in him. And so have I. Rest in peace, Tony. Rest in peace. Hello and welcome to John Richardson and the Future Notes, episode nine, where today we will be discussing nature. Uh, I am John Richardson and I'm joined by the Future Notes, Mark Stevenson. Hello. And Ed Gillespie. Hello. Thank you for finding this podcast. Thank you if you're here at episode nine, having listened to one to eight. Uh, If you're joining nine afresh and something about nature appeals to you, or you've heard a recent interview that's made you want to join us, uh, it will be news to you that I open each show with an email from a listener whose accent I do in a broadly offensive but (laughs) playful manner. And this week is no different. We have Sophie who emails hi from... Sweden. So uh, let's find out if I can do a Swedish accent. Um, I shouldn't have told you where she was from. I should have just started doing the accent. Let's try and let's do it. Let's imagine that we've forgotten. All right. And you do it and then we'll try and guess. Yes. Where is Sophie from? Sweden. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm actually getting nervous about these now, which is probably a good thing and a sign I'm moving in the right direction as a comic and a human being. So... (laughs) You complained about not getting any emails from the Nordic countries, so (laughs) I figured I'd take it upon myself to represent Sweden. (laughs) Yes, I want the Swedish accent from you, John. Oh, John. I enjoyed the episode on politics very much. I did politics in university, but I must say that the episode on travel is my favorite so far. It has made me redo my plans for my next vacation when we can travel again. So, tech for that. I love the podcast. It's good to know there is some hope for us all. Love, Sophie. Is there a reason that Sophie is also a robot? (laughs) (laughs) I was trying to do the sort of sing song, you know, tag for that, yeah, (laughs) vodka. I think this is a nation you've probably offended the most with that because now you've got into into your reasoning behind it. There's an advert from years ago that was my sort of leaping off point for this accent, which is where somebody at some point in the advert goes, that's what I said, vodka. And that's how I sort of imagine the Swedish accent. But if I've learned anything from the previous podcast is that you've told me these are the happiest countries in the world. So it's good to offend them because they'll be the least likely to be upset by it. And now um, I think about it, is the Swedish chef then actually offensive to Swedes? No, he's an icon. He's an icon. 
Is he? Oh, is he? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you said that with such confidence. It shows how much I trust you both from, from episode nine, that you could say that with confidence, and I absolutely believed you. So we move forward for both of our remaining listeners uh, <laughs> uh, to our second email. comes from uh, Martin Fisher. I'm doing his accent there. Dear John and the Future Noughts, I am a meat-eating, house-owning, business-owning, car-driving, right-voting, capitalist bastard. I'm not proud of it, but it works for me. I don't give a shit about the world or anyone in it because it's every man for himself. The alternative... I, I think I know where he's from. Go on. 1978. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so the alternative to that is to live in an old ambulance, wearing dreadlocks, piercing tattoos and tied-eyed clothing, eating lentils and joining every fucking protest going. Um, this is my full-on audition for the next series of This Is England here. So Shane Meadows is listening. The problem I have, I've become concerned about the emissions from motor racing and excessive travel and the economic death of small towns among many other issues, most of which you have touched on in your podcast, but I don't know how to address them without becoming an ambulance dweller. Um, thanks to you a lot and the way you explain things, I now feel I have someone to relate to and I've moved to Birmingham in the last three or four words <laughs> um, and I'm staying there till the end. A counsellor who can reshape my thoughts and behaviour while still enjoying most of the trappings of mainstream life. I'm sure there are lots of people like me who want to address their carbon footprint and sustainability of human existence, but can't relate to hippies. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how I feel about this email. Um, what he's basically saying is, I imagine I hate 99% of your listenership. <laughs> However... <laughs> I'm enjoying it anyway. It says, keep the podcast going. I'm entertained, educated, and informed whilst not having to give up on washing. <laughs> I mean, thoughts on Martin? Well, it's, it's interesting, though, isn't it? The idea that to care about something, you have to be in a particular group of people. And, and I find this time and time again, actually, you know, most of us care about this stuff. All of us do. Left, right, man, yes. woman. We all care. And that's why we, I think we try to keep the podcast resolutely apolitical everything mm -hmm. because because we like to engage with with everybody about the stuff that we all care about so despite you are you attempting to basically piss off martin i'm very pleased he's listening good it's a bit like it's a bit like the environmental equivalent of someone saying i'm not racist but it's like i'm not environmentalist yeah but martin's email also speaks to um this idea that it's all or nothing and what he's basically saying is I like the things I like, so I was previously willing to just let the world go to hell in a handcart, and I've now conceded that actually I can make small changes to move towards a brighter future. And I think that is another thing that your work is very key in challenging, that idea that you, you don't just get to wash your hands of it and say, well, fuck it, I'm not one of them, so I'm going to carry on. You know, the clerks, and we might as well all just carry on doing what we're doing because none of it's our fault anyway. Yeah, that's just one of the arguments that you use in, in climate change negotiations is um, when people say, oh, it's, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do anything because those people over there aren't doing anything or it's too big a problem. And one of the things that I find quite useful is go, so, you know, the science says we've all got to do our bit, our contribution. So if you're not going to do your bit, who's going to pick it up for you then? Mm. And, then they, and then they sort of go, oh, right, then I'll do it. <laughs> yes, well, that is the, yeah. that's the most proactive argument on veganism, I think, that, you know, rather than... A hundred people go vegan a year, which is what it feels like. A million people having one vegan meal a week is infinitely better and, and doesn't speak to that. You've all got to stop doing all these things now. It's just, uh, well, st try that. If you like that, put that as part of your weekly thing that you have those sausages instead of the other ones once a week and we'll all step forward one meal at a time. 
So we're here to discuss this week nature. I feel we should set our stall out by discussing the joy of nature because it is one of those, not to hark back to Martin's email, but I feel like there are some people who probably haven't had an amazing experience in nature, depressingly. We now, and we've talked about this before, the, the idea that there are two worlds, you know, there are city worlds and there are outside of city worlds. So what has been, uh, as people who have travelled and written extensively, what has been your most amazing experience in the wild with nature? I was lucky enough uh, about four years ago to to go to Antarctica with a friend of mine who uh, works on a cruise ship and sort of invited me out. So I got a free trip out there, and it was it was the first time I'd flown on holiday in fourteen years uh, in order to go and do the trip, and it was just absolutely mind blowing in every way. Just the gargantuan scale of the wildness of the place, its total indifference to human beings you know this sort of frozen wasteland but then this incredible oceanic and marine fecundity you know the seas just teeming with life from krill to penguins to whales humpback whales to all the albatrosses and seabirds um seals it was astonishing and it was a reminder of how bountiful the world can really be when it is relatively untouched yeah it's it's an absolutely extraordinary place mark well where am i going to go from there it's unfair. He's, he's, done, he's played Antarctica. You can't go anywhere from Antarctica. I've been, you know, look, I've been to space. Oh, that's where that's the only place left, isn't it? Um, I once got woken up by a bear in Yosemite Park. Does that count? That's not bad. So when you camp in Yosemite, they say you have to kind of, you know, put all your food in bags and hang it on trees because otherwise the bears come down. And um, and indeed they did. And uh, yeah, I was woken up. And it's just this huge silhouette of a bear outside your tent going and um it's quite a terrifying experience really i mean you know very benign but you know there's a moment you kind of go fucking hell that's a bear what did you do did you clap and roar or did you just let it eat your food i i sat there very still and um tried not to to soil myself (laughs) (laughs) it's one of the great natural defenses sort of like a a squid's ink i'll tell you one thing though talking about yosemite um one thing that struck me when i was there and i I do remember this probably more profoundly is because there's no lighting street lighting if you're in the right place and you just look up at the stars suddenly there's just billions of them yes staring back at you and that's that's incredibly humbling when you see that it's and, and beautiful that was exactly my answer in yosemite on our honeymoon the only point of my life that's been properly like a film. i want to make it clear that this is not mine and john's honeymoon no you are referring to your honeymoon no. with lucy are you? we yeah, are both yeah. still on our first marriages and our relationship has yet to fully blossom <laughs> <laughs> we uh and we were walking to brush our teeth in the sort of communal toilet and i just looked up and i said to lucy lock up and she gasped. And in my head, there's music, even though there wasn't. It was such a, unlike anything I'd ever seen in my life. It was remarkable. The music is called Play Mark. Um, just to get you <laughs> riled up early doors. So that's a lovely few tales of nature, uh, some of the majesty. And we now turn to the joyful point at which I asked, how fucked is nature? So having set the bar of what a wonderful thing it is, how long have we got left of it? <laughs> well, yeah, that's uh, the million dollar question. So the bad news is we've triggered the sixth mass extinction. You know, we've come out of this relatively benign period of, of stable climate uh, during which we've developed agriculture in the last 10,000 years of the Holocene. 
and tipped ourselves through our own activities into the Anthropocene. And basically, we've got an extinction rate now, which is somewhere, depending on which studies you read, between 100 and 10,000 times faster than the natural background rate. We're getting rid of species at a vast rate of knots right now. What is a mass extinction then? Could you just... Yeah, so it's when you lose about 75% of the planet's species relatively rapidly. Uh, And usually these take place relatively rapidly in geological time so over hundreds of thousands of years whereas what we're triggering is happening much much faster than that we're, but more depressingly and i think this is where i i feel it more personally um is actually we've lost about 60 percent of our wild vertebrates all of our animals with backbones since 1970 so pretty much in my lifetime and i think that's the, the sort of really grinding bit because that sort of happened on my watch or on our watch. We're at risk of having to explain to our children that they've all disappeared and it's been while we've been responsible for that. And, and it's, it's happening not just with the big sort of charismatic, brown-eyed, wet-nosed megafauna, you know, which is obviously the lions and tigers and elephants and, and all of that kind of jazz. It's also the small stuff, the uncharismatic mini-fauna. We're facing a sort of insectageddon where we've got a 75% decline in the last 25 years in some of the best studies we have, uh, which show a sort of catastrophic decline. Plus, you know, if I put my old fisheries biologist hat on, um, over 90% of the world's fisheries are either at maximum sustainable yield or overfished. And those people who might have seen The End of the Line, which was a movie uh, made about global industrial fishing a few years back, you know, the line in that that really stuck with me is that we're fighting a war against fish and we're actually winning, uh, you know, and our kids are going to say, where did all the fish go? And we're going to have to turn around and say, we ate them. So mm. there's, yeah, it's it's not great. And it, and it's happened really very, very fast. And I think that's the really concerning thing. Yeah, I remember you used to be when you drove down the motorway, you know, your windscreen would be absolutely caked with insects. Mm-hmm. And now that doesn't happen at all. That's something that you, you can actually see that change in your lifetime. We used to joke it was like the Millennium Falcon going into hyperspace with all the insects coming out of the headlights. Uh, you know, it was it was God, like... I'd never even thought of that. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's kind of a very powerful visual kind of thing. And the thing is, we're sort of superficially distanced by technology from our dependence on nature. But that doesn't mean our dependence on nature is gone away so it's a bit like sort of repeatedly punching ourselves in the face we're basically destroying the very basis of both our survival and our happiness and well-being and i think that's the real tragedy i think i hoped that insects had just learned to fly a bit higher (laughs) it's just like do you know keith if you just go up a meter they go underneath you mate (laughs) there's a great quote by um Hubert Reeves is a French-Canadian astrophysicist and popularizer of science. He says this rather beautiful thing. He says, man is the most insane species. He worships an invisible God and destroys a visible nature, unaware that this nature he's destroying is the God he's worshipping. Mm. Oh, that's good. Big. Profound, eh? Yeah. Big. And I think that the point you're touching on there is a fisheries term as well. It's known as shifting baseline syndrome, which is where each generation experiences a more denuded and impoverished natural environment than the one that they originally inherited. And I think that's the problem. You see that happening progressively. And it also happens in terms of urbanizing populations as well. The less of the visceral, powerful emotive and meaningful encounters and connections with nature that we have the less likely we are to care for it and to try to do something about protecting it and so there's a real problem with the potential vicious circle there 
Whereas what we want is a virtuous cycle where these profound experiences are shared by as many people as possible in order to ensure that we do fundamentally care and protect the, the basis of our way of life. This 75% decline in, in sort of insect life, I, I can't get Martin listening out of my head now. To that person who says, basically, fuck them, they're only flies or, you know, whatever they are. What is the consequence of that level of decline in insect life well you see i mean you know apart from anything else you know we we can have this kind of what did nature ever do for us but i mean certainly with insects um not only is it the kind of the obvious stuff around pollination services i mean so many of these insects are the things that go around and fertilize the flowers and most importantly many of our food crops um and you're already in situations now where you know the chinese have been hand pollinating um, fruit crops in order because of the insect mm. population decline but also insects are the basis of a lot of the terrestrial food chain so you know all of your beautiful songbirds uh, um, are highly insectivorous you know so you're actually taking away the food supply uh, of a lot of the terrestrial f- ecosystem so you know you may not think that bugs on your windscreen are a significant factor but that means there's no food for everything else um, and also it means that your food is not being fertilised. So insect life, fish life, uh, where else are we destroying our nature? The other way of looking at it, I mean, you know, we've basically cut down a vast amount. We've probably cut down around three trillion trees um, since the Jesus. start of agriculture, um, which is about half the trees in the world. And as people who dwell in the United Kingdom, you know, it's quite easy to look around and say, well, the landscape that we occupy, uh, that is part of our stewardship now, is is an almost entirely man-made or man-shaped landscape. There's very little sort of genuine or truly wild space left in Britain. You know, there's a bit in Dartmoor, a bit in Scotland, perhaps a tiny bit in the Peak District or some in Wales. You know, it's like there's, there's not much. It is a, a landscape which has been fashioned by our culture and civilization. Yeah, I was actually at a meeting today with uh, some people from the Welsh government and uh, they're saying, you know, well, what can we do? We said, well, as a nation, you could decide to rewild a lot of your landscape because what you think of as Wales isn't actually how Wales used to look it's it's you know it's this very man-made farmed place and those sort of you know barren craggy hills really should be covered in trees we really need to get back to putting that biodiversity in there because it's it's fundamental to well climate change as well you know the, the amount of carbon that's locked up in a tree is quite a lot and uh, if you chop down three trillion of them whilst going through an industrial revolution don't be surprised if things get nasty god that three trillion is now that is a staggering thing. That is a that's a takeaway from this one, isn't it? Fucking hell, three trillion. Yeah. And and I think the other thing is is this sort of cascade effect. What biologists and ecologists call trophic collapse. Um, we've seen concerns about this in terms of marine contamination. You know, taking out some of the basis of the marine food chains, where micro traces of contaminants can actually start to kill off copepods and and who which are the kind of insects of the sea that form the basis of the marine food chain. And I read a very interesting piece, you know, about the decline due to overfishing, um, at least partly of like West Coast salmon in the US where the input of those salmon, when they come up their native river to spawn, 
and then the salmon die, you know, at the end of that spawning process, the input of nutrients into that West Coast ecosystem is absolutely vast. They say about 90% of the nutrient input was coming from the bodies of the salmon. So being eaten by bears, but also the salmon's bodies entering the river system, going into the earth, feeding the trees, the soil. Uh, And when you start to remove those salmon, you're basically taking most of the nutrient input out of the system. So those very fertile, temperate rainforests along the West Coast of the US were heavily dependent on animal protein input. And once you start to remove that, you don't get the same spawning and you get this this race to the bottom. And I think the kind of the track record of human history is to is to find extreme bounty uh, and find a way of undermining or completely knackering its productivity. Well, I mean, I don't know if it's because we're three months into lockdown. I don't know if it's, you know, broader stresses. We start like this every week. That's genuinely the first time. I just almost started crying while you were talking. That that list of the decline in wild vertebrates, insect life, fish life, three trillion trees cut down. It's such a vivid and immediate and has already mm. happened. I think a lot of the time, you know, when we talk about systemic stuff, it's hard to emote that quickly. That's things that have already happened that we have done that are just you know to see them laid bare like that and to talk about the fact that it's it's our generation that have seen a lot of that shift but a next generation just won't ever have seen it so won't feel that that empathy with it it's absolutely staggering um and i should point out to those joining i did say at the beginning if you've listened to one to eight thank you if you are coming to this new the end of the podcast we talk about how we might fix things so stay tuned for christ's sake don't bail now and think do you know what this is a bit bleak because this is where we lay out the bleakness so we can enjoy some of the possible solutions i hope part of the response to that john is also is like i mean this is what the writer aldo leopoldo wrote to be an ecologist is to live in a world of wounds to be conscious of the kind of the impact and the damage i i also go back to a ben elton quote he said i resent the creation of a world where beauty is a reminder of what we've lost rather than what we've still got and i think this is one of the powerful He's things really of, lost uh, his comic touch hasn't he ben elton I don't <laughs> <laughs> lovely now that that's the second time one of you's quoted a comedian that isn't me wonderful this is a lovely new thread to the podcast i'm reminded of something frankie boyle said yeah keep laying them on lads you, you mentioned all the other comics but i think that's what was so powerful during the lockdown was you know, when we had the goats in Llandudno, you know, and the deer in East London, and suddenly the presence of wildlife back in our calmed and locked down cities and our urban areas, because nature was obviously going, hang on, where have they all gone? And I think there was something really amazing about that, because I think the other side of it, and this is perhaps playing to the sort of Martin Fisher argument that you were touching on, John, it's like, what does any of this matter? I mean, I always ask the question, so what if we survive? You know, what if we survive in some sort of matrix style grimly denuded techno dystopia where all the gorgeous joy and beauty and diversity and fecundity and bounty of nature is pretty much gone you know and we are as in like blade runner rebooted whatever it was called you know we're essentially living on farmed insects which i know you have a huge passion for um (laughs) in a grim world where you know we're we're getting by and we're and we're eking out in existence, but what a miserable one! Well, a fantastic job of how fucked are we? We'll move on next to why are we this fucked? And I think it's a fascinating one this week because that list is so unpleasant, and yet I don't think there's a human being alive who wouldn't be affected by that and who wouldn't say, well, you know, obviously we need insects and we need fish and we need animals and we need trees. So let's talk about how that's happened. Do any of you have any sort of opening point on how as as a humanity 
we have allowed ourselves to get to this situation? Well, I think one starting point is agriculture. So agriculture was really the first big energy revolution for humans in that, you know, before any form of agriculture, we were just running around going, have you got any food? Uh, no. Have you got any food? Uh, I'm really, I'm really hungry. We, we were either eating, resting or looking for food. And then various people worked out how to make enough food or you know, cultivate crops or, or hunt in a way that allowed us to have a surplus. And that did something pretty extraordinary because when there was a surplus, all of a sudden you didn't have to spend all your time thinking about and looking for food and you could form society. And then that's when we got separated because the surplus in a way allowed us to forget about um, the day-to-day relationship we had with and dependence upon our, our environment. And I think that's the, the very beginning of it. And agriculture turned the kind of the, the gift of nature where, you know, when you're a hunter-gatherer um, existence, when you're wandering through, nature is bounty, you know, whether it's the animals you're hunting or the stuff you're gathering. When you settle and when you stop moving and when you go into a sort of sedentary agricultural type of lifestyle, nature then becomes a threat because nature is the thing that threatens your productivity. So I think there's something actually philosophical which also shifted in us. And and I think perhaps even more worryingly was the sort of the Rene Descartes, you know, dualism um, and separation of us from nature. You know, this was supposed to be the great enlightenment, you know, the great scientific empire of reason where our kind of master and dominion role over all of, of nature through this sort of Promethean science where we discovered the fire uh, of insight basically sort of led to a sort of servant slave type of attitude where we were expected to literally torture out nature's secrets from it and i think that's a sort of a, a sense of instrumentalization and, mm-hmm. uh, and most worryingly i think the way that we relate to nature actually changes us you know if, if we treat nature as machine then we essentially become the torturers you mentioned um whales earlier and my my reference point for the the landscape not looking the way it should is the Lake District. That's near where I grew up, and that's where my mum lives now. It's where I go very often. And I know we've got a number of listeners in New Zealand, uh, and they have a similar uh, sheep farming industry there. I was depressingly old when I found out that the Lake District, as you said about Wales, shouldn't look like that. You get used to the paintings of the, you know, the scarred uh, hillsides and the bare rock and all that, and. It's not supposed to be that, is it? It's supposed to be forest and woodland and have wolves and bears and all sorts of things. Is that right? Well, yeah. And also, I mean, a more extreme example for me, when I was writing my first book, <laughs> um, I, I went out to, to see my my friend Tony Lovell, who was doing the sustainable cattle farming. You know, he pulled out these pictures of the outback from, you know, just after the, sort of the Europeans had arrived. And there's this verdant, green, forested areas and you and, and now you look at them there's parched dust bowls so you know you think of the outback as mm. this naturally desert-like space and actually loads of it looked like sussex and we we did that that's what you can't get your head around the sort of three trillion trees thing i think i denied that knowledge because i couldn't imagine that an area the size of the lake district was all that that was a human job that we cleared all the trees to raise animals on and you're saying that that happened right across the outback as well is that we just did that well it happened in europe too i mean you know you you think about the great imagination and the great myth of you know the british oak forest you know this oak forest which would have stretched across england and wales the great uh scots pine the great forests of caledonia the great forests of ireland you know which were actually chopped down by the english to build their navies when we look at these these naked landscapes it's hard to imagine this stuff from the fairy tales this is another part of the sort of misreading 
that we have of of our relationship with the land is like we should be here to tend the garden you know mm. we should be actually leaving the land richer and more fertile and with a bit of judicious input that is totally the way it can be and i think that's a really important point because it's not to say that all human beings think like this if you go back to native indian ways of thinking about the land or in australia the aboriginal uh, philosophy of you know being at one with the land you, you know you don't own the land you're a steward of it and, and and generational thinking where you think you know various you know seven generations ahead there are human systems of thinking about that increasingly Certainly the ecological understanding is that nature is far more collective and collaborative and cooperative than it is brutally competitive and survival of the fittest. It's like it's 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 a huge team effort which produces this incredible explosive productivity of life. And I think there's one other thing that's quite interesting is that human beings are the only animal with a concept of waste. So you don't see waste anywhere else in the natural world. It's not like, you know, beavers sort of go, oh, right, I've done with that. Uh, just wait for somebody to come and pick up the trash, whatever. You know, everything they throw out gets used again. And nature has this constant recycling, this constant circular economy of nothing going to waste. And yet we go, oh, I'll have that. Oh, I don't know what to do with it now. So we stick it in a landfill. And it's interesting to think that no other animal, no other species, has the idea of waste even as a concept? So it would be completely alien to. Them. What do you mean waste? Of course you can use it somewhere else. Why would you? Why would you just use it once and then throw it away? It's t- total antithesis to the natural order of things. Yeah, recycling is a law of life. Is there a is there a specific point at which when we talk about that entire outbacks and the entire America being cleared? We never needed that much, surely. There's never a need to clear that much land. That was just a way of life that people got used to, or just a desire to take stuff just because it was there just agreed i think it's uh, well i mean we talk, talk about this a lot on this podcast it's the marketization of anything as soon as you uh, ascribe a value to something beyond its value within a system it has a value to an individual that can be exploited mm-hmm. then people will exploit it and, and i think the, the moment you do that if you apply the rules of the market to nature you get this massive disconnect uh, uh, <laughs> i'm just fucking <laughs> depressed it's such a um, a clear sign of, you know, the, the point you made that we're not talking about all humans. I think sometimes I'm certainly guilty of thinking there are things that humans did, but it's not that, is it? It's a small percentage of people who forced their will across the planet. And now we are forced. Everyone is going to have to contribute to uh, what is the third part of our podcast, the, the how do we unfuck ourselves? I, I've only asked it once before, I think, in the podcast, but before we get to how, can we? It seems like we've gone so far. This is one where I think we we definitely can because this is the kind of thing you can start to change tomorrow. Amazing. God, thank Christ. Well, because I think it is about recognising this, you know, this interconnectedness and this interdependence and actually the deep-rooted biophilia that I think we all feel um, and that we can all um, get back in touch with. I mean, John Muir, who was the founder of the Sierra Club, one of the biggest environmental movements in the States, said, you know, when we try to pick out anything by itself, we find it hitched to everything else in the universe. And so that sense of a philosophical family reunion with the rest of the family of life, um, and perhaps, you know, as, as we've been talking about, a sort of new indigenism, you know, how do we get back to that mythical reconnection that every indigenous culture pretty much knew? Because it's only in the last two or 300 years that we sort of lost our way. And so... I think there's a there's an incredible philosophical reawakening 
that can happen here. And I think that brings us right back to some of the early seeds of environmentalism, where it is this kind of this hope. Um, and the poet Emily Dickinson said, hope is the thing with feathers. And if you like, the modern environmental movement was kickstarted by another marine biologist, um, Rachel Carson, who famously wrote the book Silent Spring, which was talking about the impact of agrochemicals and insecticides on invertebrates and insects and the fact that we would have a spring without birdsong because we would have taken out the terrestrial food chain. So we, we unfuck ourselves by starting, I think, with that philosophical reconnection with what really matters. And the good news is, of course, is if you let nature do its thing, it does it really quite yeah. quickly. <laughs> it, it, com- it comes yeah. back, like, right, and as we've been seeing the lockdown to some yeah. extent, Mark, I mean, when I was uh, out in Australia, I uh, went to a farm run by a chap called Michael Coolan, and uh, I, I always remember the thing he said to me just as we were leaving. He said, look, the thing is, shall I try and do an Australian accent? Shall yes, I, please. Said, the thing is in Australia and America, We've absolutely pillaged our land. We've just fucked the whole thing. But I think we can turn it around <laughs> really quickly. I mean, there's a sort of Janet Street Porter uh, <laughs> coming there from, from some angles. Yeah, I don't know. I've, I find accents very difficult. I'm very impressed with your ability to do them, John. And I, I think it's because I just know who I am, whereas you were lost in the <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. A vocal chameleon. Um <laughs> But let me tell you, from an entertainment perspective, far more enjoyable hearing your attempts yeah. than mine. So we'll be switching mm. that opening to the podcast from now on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm building on the point that Mark's making there. I mean, a lot of us might have seen the story of the, the Yellowstone wolves, you know, in, in Yellowstone National Park. Because I think what happened there is a really interesting example of what happens when you bring back a top predator. Again, if you think about the sort of mythical symbolism of so much of our wildlife, you know, it's full of wolves and bears uh, and these big beasts which used to stalk our lands that we hunted because we were afraid of them. But when you bring them back, you know, they're the ones that keep the grazing populations of herbivores under control, which means you get a lot more young trees that survive. So you get uh, a much greater diversity of, of forestry, which again helps the insects recover and then you get more bird life. And so what you realize is actually when these apex predators return, you often get this kind of explosion of, of ecosystem recovery. And the other thing that I think is really exciting is just the you know, the wisdom of biomimicry. Nature is not only, as Mark said, you know, brilliant uh, resilience, but it's also, you know, incredibly restlessly inventive and innovative. You know, it's had four and a half billion years of practice. Some of our best design innovations come from observing and learning what nature has done. And I think we can we can identify loads of great examples of that individually. And my favorite one, you know, in a sort of not so slow travel perspective. I went on a bullet train in Japan and, and when they first built these high-speed trains, they had a huge problem that when they went into the tunnels at such high speed, it basically created this massive sonic boom in the tunnel, uh, which was obviously incredibly uncomfortable and not, not great from a structural engineering perspective. Uh, and then they remodeled the nose of the train on the beak of the kingfisher because the kingfisher bird uh, dives, you know, headlong into rivers in order to catch fish. And so the design of its beak is hydrodynamically formed to, to minimize the resistance of that impact. And so lo and behold, when you put that, when you shape the front of a train like that, you make it much more aerodynamic and you remove the impact of the sonic boom. And we've got loads of examples like this from the kind of shark skin swimsuits that Olympic swimmers were wearing to even like the next generation of 
of water gel based solar panels, which will be almost like artificial leaves. And I think if we can start to have a, a biomimicry approach to our own systems, as Mark said, you know, nature has no concept of waste, no other species has a concept of waste, then that's where the real ecological intelligence comes from. And it and it weaves together so many different themes that we've touched on in, in different episodes, because, you know, we still got so much to learn. And it's only our arrogance uh, and our kind of superiority, which is a, a flawed and misplaced one, that makes us think that we're smarter. If you think about it, nature's really, really, really good at growing shit. I, mean, I don't <laughs> know if you've noticed, but it's really, really fantastic, at, you know, making this wonderful, fecund and beautiful world. And we come in and kind of go, oh, we can probably do that better. And what we get is a very small uptick at the beginning, but we're destroying the system underneath. Now, there are now a massive sort of upswell in in the ideas of things like permaculture and running farms along much more natural lines. And the thing is, you still get the productivity, you can still get the yields, but you're maintaining the way uh, nature actually works. You're not you're not sort of substituting it, and it works economically and it works for the planet. So there there is this massive sort of permaculture movement now um where we realize that you know actually not by trying to replace nature but maybe just by you know tweaking her a little bit working with her having her as a companion we can get everything we need and she can still be healthy and happy yeah and that, and that comes back to your favorite thing john as well i mean you know, this it's plant-based diets again as we've already touched on you know food plays such a massive role of this about half of our habitable land is farmland at the moment but three quarters of that is used for livestock, you know. And if you look at the United Nations Red List on endangered species, there's 28,000 species listed on those, and 24,000 of them are threatened by agriculture. So actually, a, a dramatic shift to plant-based diets actually would liberate so much of more of that land to be rewilded, to be returned to biodiversity, to be restored to to beauty and wildness. That's the kind of thing that we could be doing. I think the other thing to note is I. The great biologist E.A. Wilson said, actually, what we should be doing and his his plan to unfuck the world is basically to broadly allocate half the world to nature, you know, to essentially set up these biosphere reserves, half of terrestrial, half of marine environment set up as these restoration and resilience zones. And I think as a broad goal you know, to give us something to aim at, that would be exactly the type of thing we should be doing. I mean, I think the one thing we have to make really clear here is it's not either or. It's not like, you know, we all have to disappear. You know, the, the planet can easily sustain, you know, 20 billion of us if necessary. And, and it's not that cities are bad either, actually, because cities are incredibly efficient. Mm. You know, I think they take up 3% of the Earth's surface and they, and they, they have something like nearly 60% of the Earth's people on them. So cities are very, uh, you know, efficient in a way and getting people together uh, is actually a much more efficient to do healthcare and educational sorts of other things as well. So it's not that you know everything that humans do is bad. It's just understanding the balance, and that can be done. That can be done. Um, do you know London is the world's first national park city? No, I did not know that. London is actually a, a national park now. Uh, it was launched last July, and the idea being that over fifty percent of London is actually green space. Uh, and by starting to manage and look at that as a discontinuous but uh, relatively contiguous area that can be looked at more holistically, it's really quite exciting, you know, and that's the the plethora of our back gardens, you know, our, our great parks as a legacy of the Victorian era. 
and I think and things like Epping Forest and, and Richmond Park it's really quite wonderful when you can start to imagine that type of approach being replicated in other cities and and every building could be having a green roof or what Malaysian architect Ken Yang calls hairy buildings where a building could actually have more ecological space than the footprint of ground it occupies because obviously if a building is 20 stories high and it has all of those balconies or parks built into it then actually that could have much more green space than than its footprint on the ground below so oh, i like that i agree with mark i think you know we just have to think in terms of a radical urban ecology which which sees cities as fertile, that sees cities as places where farming and rewilding are also relevant. So, I mean, urban farming is one of the things that's still been re- rebuilding Detroit. And it's amazing if you go there, you get the, the freshest food. I mean, I've had the best salad of my life in Detroit, which you wouldn't expect because the community there has decided, you know, to, to all the abandoned, um, you know, lots, they're, they're turning into farms and they're doing community farming. And it, it's like a city that's also a farm. And, and we don't think that's possible, but of course it is. And why wouldn't it be? And, and one of the ways we unfuck ourselves, of course, is that our kids begin to see where food comes from and they get to learn about how to grow it and they get to see it. I mean, I'm hanging out with my four-year-old Emmett and, you know, we've just planted some carrots and he's absolutely, you know, I mean, he doesn't need doesn't need computer games. He just mm. needs a firm young carrot. <laughs> <laughs> he did ask me the other day if we could do a child-friendly podcast for him. Um, because he says, Daddy, can I listen to your podcast? And I have to think about all the swearing we do. And I have yes. to go, no. And so he said, could we do a special uh, child-friendly one for him about trains? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we can. Um, I, I don't know a great deal about trains, and I certainly don't know a great deal about not swearing, but uh, <laughs> we can certainly do our best, a little spin-off. How do we, how do we unpoop trains? <laughs> <laughs> I could see that working. Get the fat yeah. controller involved. So we talked about like planning cities better around the green spaces and using buildings better. I've still got that feeling of fury from when we discussed, you know, that that rampaging moment where a group of greedy individuals spread their ideology across the world against the will of those people. Is there anything legally at the moment? to prevent that happening any further? Are there any countries which have laws to stop people just cutting down forests? And I mean, we're seeing huge problems at the moment in Brazil with an ideology that is not benefiting the planet. Is it happening anywhere where people say, well, let's start now enshrining in law a protection for our nature? Well, I mean, as we touched on last week in in the climate change episode, there are actually, you know, in many nations, some pretty good environmental laws. And there's uh, one in particular, which I think you're probably reaching for here, John, which is the idea of ecocide. So the idea of ecocide is you know, it's a crime against humanity, just as uh, you know, uh, torture would be or, or the Holocaust would be considered a crime against humanity. And actually, there are some nations that have actually put ecocide into their statute book. So it is actually a, a crime you can be prosecuted for. And strangely, some of those nations, you know, are not what you expect. So Russia's got an ecocide law. Wow. Uh, Armenia's got one. Uh, the Ukraine's got one. And there's a campaign here to uh, to get that passed into law. And I think it's getting some pretty serious consideration. And uh, it would be a great thing to push for uh, here in America. Yeah, I don't want to bring us back to a, a point of memoriam. But, um, you know, Polly Higgins, who was the barrister who kind of resurrected the notion of ecocide and and campaigned and sadly died uh, about a year and a half ago in order to, to bring that forward. I mean, she, she was an amazing Bauhaus, a bit like Mark's friend Tony, in, in terms of 
pushing this idea into the mainstream and deserves a, a name check. Oh, yeah, yeah. Polly, one of the most wonderful human beings that ever walked the earth. Well, I'll drink to that. Um, and what about individually? I think that this episode, as much as ever, listeners to that first part will have felt powerless and furious about the state we're in what would you advise an individual do as you said at the beginning of this you you can fix it and you can start tomorrow what should we be doing well i think for me it's three things i mean one is to as mark said you know just do some guerrilla gardening you know plant something protect your pollinators plant some bee friendly stuff you know plant a tree create a wild space for nature don't don't concrete over your front drive in order to park your car. Don't astroturf your back garden because it's easier to manage. Get rid of your lawn, in fact, you know, uh, let it go into a bit of a wild meadow. Those are all the things you could directly do. I think in terms of conservation, um, I would go wild locally. I try and join your local wildlife trust. You know, they're an amazing organization. They have most of us are, are within a few miles, uh, if not much closer to a, a wildlife trust reserve. So everyone's got an access to them somewhere in the country uh, and get involved in in a local conservation project near you. Um, and, and the third one, I think, is my philosophical one, which was actually had a very powerful effect on me, was just spending time alone in nature. Um, and I think when we go back to a lot of these indigenous cultures and their wisdom and their initiatory experiences many of them involve spending uh, a prolonged period of time alone in nature but the whole idea here is that we will only truly become able to understand ourselves by having those type of experiences and they are the things which i think are, are very profound and i was very shocked i used to lecture on the masters in conservation leadership at cambridge university um and i asked this group of international masters students you know we were all active conservation workers from all over the globe and i asked them every year how many of you have spent 24 hours alone in the wild and bearing in mind these are people it was their full-time job and barely a handful in every course of 30 plus people had actually spent more than 24 hours alone in nature so i think i think those are are very profound and powerful things that we should all consider doing even if it is just go and find yourself a wild spot and just sit there for an hour or two and be quiet. Mm. I mean, the thing to say about that is, of course, it's also really good for you. It's yeah. it's, it's absolutely <laughs> one of yeah. the best things you can do for yourself, that connection with nature. And we, I, I remember, you know, I, I, you know, going out on a walk, being dragged out on a walk by, you know, because my wife quite likes to go hiking or whatever. And I'm like, oh God, but I've got a, you know, I've got a podcast script to write. I've got to do this thing or blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden you find yourself going, oh, hang on. I can I could be so much better at all of those things that I thought I was being taken away from by having this time to reconnect with something a bit bigger than me, you know, and, you know, having that time in nature actually will make you more efficient at all the other things that you want to do away from nature. So it's a win-win because it, it reminds you of the great bounty that we have and that we want, might want to look after it. I'm going to reread your reminding me. One of my favourite books is called Everett Roos, A Vagabond for Beauty, who was sort of a similar tale to the uh, Chris McCandless Into the Wild, just uh, but set much earlier in the 20th century, just a young man so obsessed with nature and being on his own in the wilderness that he actually he felt a bit weird, and it was a time when economic booms were happening, all his friends were getting jobs and going into finance, and he just said, I just don't want to see them anymore because I've got nothing to say to them. I just want to stay out in the wilderness. And it is a very 
it's a, it's an inspiring tale. It doesn't end well forever, but it is uh, it's nicely. And my sister now is doing, uh, as you mentioned, at the you know being in the wild. My sister's doing the the wildlife trust are doing a thirty days of wild uh, activities. Yeah. You can get on the website now activities for every day, where every day in June you do something in the wild. Um, Mark, anything else? You mentioned carrots. I feel awful. I belittled the carrot. It was just a joke. Um, I think it's wonderful that you're growing carrots. I hope you've got good fine soil because you don't want any stones or anything in there because it'll kink your carrot. Indeed. And I was just trying to get a, a with nail and I reference in as well. A firm young carrot. There's nothing quite as great in life as is. Uncle Monty said. It's kind of a sexual reference. Although there's a great line in that about nature. And he goes, goes go out in nature, go restore ourselves. He goes, I'm in a park and I'm practically fucking dead. <laughs> I think it always starts with a shift in your own mind, which is so get out into nature when you can, even if you don't think you want to. And then practically, there are a number of ecocide campaigns that are looking for funding. And you can just type ecocide into Google and you'll find some people who are trying to get this law passed um, into European and British law and they could do with your help and support. Um, So, you know, become aware of that and let other people know. I'm going to pledge. I still feel bad that week one we talked about your doll and I said I was going to make it and I didn't. And there'll be, you know, any listeners to this podcast who've come from my stand-up who are of a neurotic frame of mind will remember that I let you down on that. I'm going to sleep outdoors in the tent this week in our garden. Um, I'm not going to do it with my daughter because I think it'll be a bad experience for her. But I'm going to go wild and I'm going to sleep in our garden and I shall report back to you next week. Fantastic. I'm living what your neighbours are going to think. They're going to like, like James, he's already got a pub in the back garden, but now it appears that Lucy has, has asked that he sleep. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think of the effect on our marriage. I might ask my mate Andres to drop you a line then, John, so you can, uh, he, he, he runs an organization, amazing organization called Way of Nature, and they host these these vision quests and these wilderness solos. So I might just get him to drop you a line with a few tips of what you might like to ruminate on while, while you're camping in your back garden. Absolutely. Well, I should be scared of, uh, not the bear, yes. but there's definitely a badger who comes through our back garden. Hey. And I, I don't know how naughty badgers can be, but... I'll say this now, it's not a bear in your cemetery, but if that badge is near my tent in the middle of the night, I'm going to shit my pants. <laughs> um, I bought a wildlife camera to try and get footage of the badger for our daughter, and I tied it to a tree in our garden and put some food out for it. And within an hour, the fucking magpies had eaten every bit of food. <laughs> And I'm trying to love nature, but to be frank, the magpies and the crows at the moment could piss right off because they're all over my fat balls and I've got a pair of tits in a box um, in the garden. I'm ending with as many innuendos as I can <laughs> after carrot mate. I'm dangling my fat balls out there to try and help this pair of tits I've got in a box. And the crows, <laughs> they're going through four balls a day, you know, and mm. I can't sustain that. You know, lockdown aside, I might go shopping more often, but I'm doing my click and collect once a week and that's it. So once once my fat balls have been nibbled into absolute oblivion, <laughs> what else is there? I mean, I could scatter some seed. Of course I could. I could throw my nuts about. Stop anyway. it. It's an onslaught. <laughs> the, 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 COVID, the trouble is they're so bloody smart. That's, that is the thing. Mm. I mean, I, I was sat on the roof the other week having a having a drink, watching the sunset, and I was watching this magpie hopping along the parapet. And it suddenly, I was, I was, I was wondering what what are they up to? And next thing you know, it popped up and it pulled the biggest spider out I've ever seen in England. 
from out from underneath one of the tiles, sort of threw it on the ground. As he heard the spider hit the roof, it was that big. And then hopped down and wolfed it down in one go. And he's like, oh, he's spider hunting. That story's done two things. It's going to make me more generous with the Corvids if I know they're hunting the big spiders. And it means I'm not going to camp out this week because if the spider's that big that you can hear them hitting the fucking ground, then I'm staying indoors. <laughs> um, uh, so that's it for this week. Uh, as usual, you can reach us with your uh, feedback on that episode or suggestions for other topics by the usual channels. We always welcome your suggestions for our final feature, which is of course, Pointless Futures. This is where we discuss some of the less positive uh, ways we might uh, develop in the future. And our suggestion this week for a Pointless Future comes from Lee Hine. Uh, he says, topic of discussion, loving the podcast, promoting it wherever I can. Thank you for that. Do tell your friends um, and your enemies. Why not? Uh, I thought you might like to chat about the possible benefits of the invention of the jacuzzi for your balls pictured below. <laughs> Kindest regards, Lee Hine. And then a, a link to a gadget called the Testy Koozie, which is a, a mini jacuzzi for your balls. Now, we could discuss this or we could do it properly. So I'm pleased to reveal that the day Lee's email came in, I went online and ordered a Testy Koozie. Um, <laughs> it hasn't arrived. I, I don't know if it's the fact that, you know, lockdown happened and first the paddling pool sold out and then the the home hot tubs inflatable hot tubs and now the testicuzzi is the sort of the next best thing but when the testicuzzi arrives i'll oh, hang on when you say the next best thing after a paddling pool how big are your balls <laughs> <laughs> i basically usually have a hot tub for each um, <laughs> don't get cold feet on our second marriage now now you know about the boys um, yeah. So I, I, I'll discuss that when it arrives. It might be next week or it might be something that we discuss in 10 episodes. But uh, just to let you know, if you do send in via email a suggestion for a pointless future that is uh, genital related, I will buy it. Um, so and, be wary. And will you, will you be testing it out live on the podcast then, John? Will we be able I think to that's the you... only way, to be honest. I think the, the, the bleakness of the opening, it sort of began as a funny thing that I'd have a drink to uh, counter some of the bleakness of how fucked are we, but it's becoming a genuine problem for my health. So it might be that going forward, I have the testicuzzi on while we discuss how <laughs> fucked things are, just to lighten the mood. I don't know. It looks a fairly small thing. It looks like a small sort of porcelain toilet um, with oddly like a, a Bourbon biscuit on the back, which I'm not sure what that's for. I think that's a little cushion that you rest part of yourself oh. on. I think, <laughs> and, 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 and then and then dang, dangle your gentleman into the, right. the warm, bubbly water. So anyway, the point is keep your suggestions coming in because I am desperate for stimulus on lockdown. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you so much. Um, I'll see you again next week. And thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week. Take care of yourselves, each other, and the planet. Cheerio.